This is Hashtag History episode 50. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And we have made it to episode 50. Like, what? What is going on? What is happening? This has <sighs> been a really great season. What do you think your favorite episode from this season has been, Leah? Ooh, probably Pocahontas and John Smith. I really loved that one, too. It, yeah. It's it's tough for me to say because we had so many great episodes this season. I keep going back to the Joe Lewis. Oh, episode. that was a good one, too. And then I also really loved our American Indian boarding schools episode just because we received so much feedback from listeners. That was really great. And unfortunately, learning of the continued you know ramifications of that dark chapter in history that still exists today. Yeah, for sure. Yes. But we have really, really, really exciting news this week for our half century episode. I am beyond ecstatic to announce that we are joined today by two of our all-time favorite podcasters. We have as our guests on this super extra special season finale episode, Allie and Katie from Herstory on the Rocks. Hello. (laughs) You have to say it right, though. It's her story. On the rocks. Okay. <laughs> there you go. And you know what? Something else that's funny is like, as I was kind of putting together our little script, I generally write people's names as like, you know, alphabetical Allie and Katie, but you ladies don't say it that way on the podcast, right? Normally, I think, Katie, you introduce yourself first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So even yeah, as I was, too. yeah, and I was like hearing it in my head, like that doesn't sound right. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, we, I've been married to her brother for so long that it's always been Jake and Allie. Oh, so, yeah. Sir and Allie. So then it just became Katie and Allie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's and also yeah. a show called Kate and Allie. So yes. it's just, it just, is flows. there really? Yeah. yeah, from the 80s. Yeah. Oh my God, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, the curtain from SNL. <laughs> oh my God. So I think. Between our podcast and your guys' podcast, we run in a lot of the same circles for our listeners. But for anyone that doesn't know your show, we know that if they like ours, they would love yours. So can you tell us a little bit more about your podcast and where people can find you? Sure. Um, so Hearst Run the Rocks is a women's history podcast where we basically pick a woman each week, the two of us, and I tell a story and make Allie a cocktail themed about that woman. And then we take a break. Allie makes a cocktail for me, tells me about that woman. And then we talk about them and hijinks ensue because we are very drunk. (laughs) (laughs) And we always like to say that we are not professional historians, that we're professional drinkers. Mm -hmm. And something that is a big add on to our show is that we appreciate doing fictional women. And Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of... um, strictly female-based female history podcasts don't always include the fictional aspect, which is so important to female history. So I think that's an important add-on that Mm -hmm. we always love. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That is a super unique thing. And I remember the first time I listened to one of your episodes about a fictional woman, I was like, how the heck are they going to cover this? And they end up being so fascinating. You know, I didn't think I would be that interested in learning about Minnie Mouse, but I guess I was. So <laughs> That one was a stretch. That was a hard one to reach. <laughs> well, we really are so excited to have you both on the podcast, especially for our 50th episode ever. So we decided to kind of combine a little bit of what you ladies do with a little bit of what we do. So in honor of having her story on the rocks on the podcast, We, of course, have to talk about a woman in history since that's what they do. But because this is hashtag history, you all know we had to bring you a woman in history that is super controversial, super convoluted, and super contested to this day. And who else could that be but Tanya Harding? (laughs) Yes! 
I have been wanting to cover Tanya Harding since forever. So I am so excited that we get to do this all together. But before we do that, as the ladies from uh, Herstory on the Rocks told us, they also do cocktails and they have prepared a drink for us. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And this is Hashtag History. The podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike. Where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. This is a cocktail called On Thin Ice. Um, oh my God, I love it. <laughs> um, so it's an ounce and a half of tequila, an ounce of blueberry liqueur, juice <laughs> for half a lemon, and then a half ounce of vanilla simple syrup or just simple syrup and vanilla extract if you don't have vanilla simple syrup. That's but what I did. I might- too. All that jazz in the glass and cheers to you. Cheers. cheers. I'm very excited about Me this. Me too. Oh Yeah. Mm. that's good the vanilla is really strong and very very good yeah. it's funny it's because of the lemon though we didn't realize we had for we took a sip before the lemon was in and then added the lemon and you could taste the vanilla even more really oh really yeah. leah do you want to tell them how i f***ed up the <laughs> cocktail recipe yeah so when she she was she wrote in a document or in a text to me the re- ingredients that you guys gave to her and in it she transposed one ounce of blueberry liqueur to 10 ounces of blueberry <laughs> liqueur. And I was like, that's a cup. That's more than a cup. That's a cup yeah. of liqueur. I don't think that's right. <laughs> and so I was like texting her really quickly, like, oh my God, don't do 10 ounces. That was my bad. <laughs> Yeah, it yeah, just and it really blueberry liqueur ever, <laughs> and it didn't even register for me like that ten ounces was a lot until I was like, I don't have a glass big enough for this. So <laughs> anyway, so thank you so much for the cocktail. And before you ladies get started, I know one thing that you do on your podcast is a little segment that I love where you describe what the woman looks like that you are covering. Yes, we do. So because obviously this is an audio format and Mm -hmm. the thing that people love to do when they're listening to podcasts is polish their car. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We always have some sort of thing that our listeners are doing that that makes it just impossible for them to Google. So their hands are (laughs) just a mess. Just busy. They're covered in honey. (laughs) They just got a manicure. Their nails are all wet. Too much. So because we can't trust our listeners to Google things, um, we like to describe what the women look like. We say we like to get a little physical, physical, sometimes better than others. Mm -hmm. Um, Love it. Terrible. That was really really bad. (laughs) Um, Okay. So Tanya Harding, what a a doll of a human. I mean, (laughs) I... (laughs) I feel like, honestly, though, what she looks like is so crucial to the story because the fact of the matter is she does not look like other skaters. No, she really hooked herself deep into the 80s vibe with the the perm and the bang. Oh, and she had the mullet for a little bit. Mm. Oh, I love that mullet. (laughs) So much of her story, and I know we'll get into this more later, but so much of her story, uh, regardless of how you feel about her, is like the unfairness of the way she was treated based on how she looked versus yeah. the other ladies she competed with. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you have Tanya Harding out there. She's wearing maybe a little bit more garish, unsubtle makeup than other people. <laughs> she has her hair teased a little differently. She's typically out there in homemade skating outfits. And she just physically, she has like kind of a pinched face. She has big blonde hair that's very teased. And you're right. She just looks and she's also more muscular, frankly, mm-hmm. than some of the other women who were skating at the time. So her physical shape is really important to the story. And that's kind of what she looked like. And it is going to dictate and shape her career as, as we know it. So, right. Yeah. So that's what she looked like (laughs) heavily impacted by her looks. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, as most women are through history, which is why we love to talk about it. Very. Yeah. There was another women's history podcast that I listened to a lot that they were talking about that too, where basically like, they do similar to you ladies where they also describe what the woman looks like because they were saying like, essentially you can't even talk about a woman without discussing her physical appearance. That is like, it's a package deal. Mm -hmm. And so much so with Tanya Harding, like we, we could not talk about her without discussing her appearance. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, I know, we did a lot of watching with her because Tanya has so there's so much video of her. Yeah. yeah. And there's so many documentaries from both before and after. So separating her from what she actually looked like when you're like watching her in sharp edges and like the truth and lies of the Tanya Harding story. Yes. You can't take away what she looks like from her story. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I love now in like more recent interviews, she's like figured out the perm kind of thing. (laughs) She's figured it out. (laughs) Yeah. She's figured out like the blue eyeshadow shouldn't go all the way up to the eyebrows. You know, We've all been there. We've all been there. Oh yeah. yeah. Some of us, it lasted longer than others. (laughs) So, I mean, do we want to dive deep into her story? Are you guys ready? Please do. We're so excited for you ladies to talk all about her upbringing and her figure skating career and all that good stuff. Okay, perfect. Well, Tanya Maxine Harding was born on November 12th, 1970 in Portland, Oregon to Lavana Goldman and Albert Harding. So Lavana is a waitress and a bartender, sometimes working up to three jobs at once to support the household. And her father was kind of in and out of work. Like at one point she listed all the jobs that he had, but he'd had a back injury. So we could never really keep any jobs for very long. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that Mm -hmm. I watched said that he was quote unquote underemployed, not unemployed, but underemployed. Like he had these skills, but he couldn't do the things. Oh, wow. I think that's a great way to put it. Mm -hmm. Um, And this just, this whole situation caused them to have a very turbulent life. They didn't have much money and they moved around a lot because he kept having to get new and different jobs. So yeah, but by the time she was in fifth grade, they had moved 13 times. That's right? a, and, and that was like a misconception that I had had about her story because she always talks about uh, Oregon is very, uh, it's a big part of her story that yeah. she like, grew up in Portland. And, you know, so I just assumed she was always in Portland, but she moved 13 times like in and around Portland. Like, oh mm-hmm. my God, that's crazy. Yeah. Oh, and as a teacher, like we call mm-hmm. any kid who moves a school once before they're 12, a high risk student. Mm. Like our goal oh. is to make sure that they're not constantly remaking friends. And this poor girl was constantly remaking friends. Oh, yeah. And it also didn't help that she's not just moving around like nice areas of Portland. She's moving to new like 
trailer park areas and Tanya yeah. knew from like a very young age that they were poor so and what, she considered herself white trash yeah and yeah. she said like I was watching an interview with Lavana and she was like yeah Tanya told me that we were white trash and I said we have a beautiful new trailer we're not <laughs> trash <laughs> I, I love I love so much that you brought that up because it was on the tip of my tongue to say that too, that yes. like, we're not trailer trash. We got a nice new trailer. Yes. Like, <laughs> I, I, like, I'm sorry to break it to you, but unfortunately that's not the definition of trailer trash. <laughs> and, and, I mean, it, and it is unfortunate that like the definition of trailer trash refers to someone that's of like lower economic means that happens to live in a trailer, you know, but her mom, I mean, like in a, we're going to, I know you ladies are going to talk about her mom more, uh, but to give her any grace for just a moment, it's kind of cute of her to be like, but we have a brand new, nice, cute trailer. Yeah. Like, okay. You don't, you don't, you're not, you don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she was just a rough woman. She had been mm. married four times before meeting Albert Harding. And I think by the time they got together, she was just scarred from her past relationships. She also brought children with her. So she had two sons and I believe a daughter. Um, and one of those sons would go on to sexually assault Tanya when she was a young girl. And then in a horrible incident later, which is just terrible. And mm -hmm. her and her mom just always had a rough relationship. She had to look a little bit better with her dad. <laughs> And her dad was like a blue collar guy. Like we said, he was underemployed, but he liked to do, I know we're talking like white trash, but he liked to do quote unquote redneck things. Oh yeah. He liked <laughs> to take her hunting and he liked to take her fishing and like these right. outdoorsy, like burly things that you don't picture an ice princess doing. Oh yeah. And he's right. like this, how do you fix a carburetor? So like <laughs> someone was like, yeah, like Tanya competed against me in an ice skating match and or whatever they're called. And there's like, and then she jumped my car out into the parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> She's very well-rounded. She's super well-rounded. Maybe um, two, maybe two. Yeah. Well <laughs> Uncomfortably well-rounded. <laughs> and she really loved her dad. But one of the things that really struck me was she mentioned at one point, she was like, yeah, but I never like respected him. Hmm. You know, because I think that, and we'll get into this later too, but she kind of equated like abuse and hardship as like love. Yeah. And she was like, well, yeah, but like he didn't really do much and like whatever, but, but he was always on her side, which she really needed when she was a kid. Um, and I think also an important backdrop to give this whole thing is like, we're going to be talking a lot about Lavana and her and Tanya have very different takes on what went on. <laughs> Mm -hmm. in this story me and my mom do too though so. oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah oh yeah um but you know because tanya tells these stories about like she's like she was domineering she was emotionally abusive and then her mom was like um i was the most supportive person in your life so <laughs> which i think that both of those can be true i think you're right, right? Yeah. you know and, yeah. and to say like they do have totally i've listened you know, to documentaries where they both have been interviewed and they have totally different perspectives on things, but some things can be one and the same, you know, mm -hmm. she could have been the most supportive person in her life and also been a complete asshole to her. Yeah, no, it's so true. Yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, she's a classic stage mom, but like on the ice. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So, and I think like Tanya just describes like seeing her mother's life and thinking like, I have got to get out of here. I can't end up like her and her journey kind of out, out of that really began when she was three. So the story goes, she and her parents are walking through this mall and they get to this big ice skating rink inside the mall. And she begs her parents to let her try it. It's her first time out on the ice. And 
of course, Lavana was like, no, we got to move. <laughs> and the dad was like, no, it's going to be cute. So <laughs> they put her on the ice and they were like, huh, well, that's weird. She's three and her knees aren't wobbling. She's not falling down. She's actually skating, which is not normal. No, it's, I, I, I skated for the first time when I was in middle school and was black and blue all over my legs the next day. <laughs> so like, that's like not Bambi. normal. You feel like Bambi. Like, oh yeah. Like, oh yeah. Legs. Or I guess Bambi had legs. Just wobbly legs. know how to use them. <laughs> Bambi had a skunk and a rabbit, <laughs> but no legs. But that's insanely impressive. I mean, look at like roller skating where you have four wheels that are pretty balanced. Yeah. And even at three years old, you're still, I mean, shoot, if I were to go skating right now, I'd be holding onto the wall. But at three years old, you're definitely holding onto the wall or you're holding a little like a, you know, like little cart thing that you can hold on to. That's mm -hmm. on four skates. We're talking on a blade at mm -hmm. three years old. That is insanely impressive. And also, like, people in Oregon weren't big skaters in Portland. This was not, like, an area where people trained athletes. So it's, mm. like, she's going on the ice, and she's, like, doing circles around people at, like, three. Yeah. That was one thing I had heard exactly that, that Portland is not exactly an ice skating capital. And so most of these ice rinks where people would train were in the middle of malls. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, that's where the ice skating rink was. Yeah, it's so crazy. It's so... Yeah. I mean, Lavana saw it and then she's like, and like, apparently Tanya, that's all she talked about. She's like, I want to skate. I want to skate. So then she's like, all right, well, let's find you somebody. And there again, it's not a skating town. So there's one person and that is Diane Rawling. Hmm. And Diane didn't normally coach children. So Lavana took her and she's like, you will coach her. And she's like, no, no, no. And then she's like, all right, go out and skate. And like, it's very similar to what happened in the movie. I Tanya, like little tiny Tanya is like skating circles around Diane. And she's like, okay, fine. Like that girl's pretty good. <laughs> like, yeah. I guess we should do this. Yeah. So she was just a natural. She started her figure skating training pretty early on. Her and her mom would get to the rink at 4.30 in the morning to get in like at least three, if not four hours of skating training in before they went to school. This is also one of those things where, you know, Tanya obviously tells a story about how her mom would fill the thermos half with coffee, half with brandy and just drink all morning. And of course, her mom was like, that wasn't brandy. That was brandy flavoring. I didn't have all in the morning. It's like, again, yeah. probably somewhere in the middle but i'm kind yeah, of exactly. <laughs> yeah and it's it's you know her mom was dealing with a lot she was yeah. dealing with multiple divorces and multiple children and a lot of stress like you know you can't blame her necessarily for drinking but you can blame her for putting her kid in a car and driving her somewhere oh drunk. yeah so yeah that's right. okay well and also she is not being a peach at the rink she <laughs> is just like standing on the side yelling at tanya and there's this famous story that, you know, Tanya's skating and she's like seven or eight years old, I think, or maybe even nine. And she's like, I have to pee. And she's like, I paid for you to be on the rink. You're going to skate. And she pees herself. Oh. And Lavana just makes her skate after she peed on herself. Like, it's like this horrible thing of like... That's just, that's not even just physically upsetting. That is like emotionally so upsetting. Oh yeah. So embarrassing. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I write, I read an article comparing Tanya's real life, what's verified to what happened in the movie, I, Tanya, and what she says in different documentaries. And mm -hmm. it turns out that that story is pretty accurate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That she was forced to stay on the ice for hell or high water. Yeah. It's one of those things like it's really upsetting the things that did end up being true. Like, you know, Tanya's like, my mom would beat me with a hairbrush. And then, cut to an interview with someone who was like, yeah, I walked in on her mom beating her with a hairbrush. And like, God. so it's not just Tanya saying this. And right. there's one parent who, or like another kid who walked in and Lavana slapped Tanya so hard that she like was thrown off of the chair that she was in. My and God. Person, yeah. And the person went to Diane Rowling, the coach, and she was like, I'm calling protective services. And Diane had to be like, I know that seems like the right thing to do but figure skating is this only is the only way this girl is going to get out of here. So if you call child protective services, she's never going to skate again and she'll never have a clear way out. So she's like, wow. I know, I know maybe it's not the right decision, but like it was not the right decision. No. <laughs> so that's such a tough thing. Like I I'm sure Ali, you're familiar with this being a teacher. And I know like Leah and I have teach, teach we've teached <laughs> I'm, feeling, <laughs> I'm feeling the cocktail um we've taught at a dance studio and it's just that really tough uh line between at what point do i escalate these concerns that i have about this child mm -hmm. you know uh it's it's a very tough line the line should not there should not be a line when there are eyewitness reports of being beat with a hairbrush you know yeah. like right. that, that's that's an unacceptable measure yeah, it's weird because there is a level of like the mom not understanding embarrassment. Like the mom had gotten to a point where like shame wasn't a thing anymore. I'm not right. ashamed of who I am. You shouldn't yeah. be ashamed of who you are. Wear your ice skating costume to school for your picture so we can use the clothes and the picture for two things. Yeah, right. Fine, do it. Whatever. I right. get like, that. Pee on the ice. No one's going to care about that in 10 years. But yeah, the physical, physical abuse. And I mean, that can all be counted as emotional trauma, but like the physical abuse that people were witnessing and privy to and not doing anything about is a massive issue. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Um, but in Lavana's mind and in the coach's mind and pretty much in everybody's mind, like skating was the key to her success. And like one of the unfortunate parts is that Lavana thought that her judgment and her criticism was also key to Tanya's success. She was like, yeah. she would do nothing without it. So when she's four years old, I mean, she's out there winning competitions and she's hooked because Tanya also makes that clear. She's like, I wanted to skate. You know, it would have actually been so much easier for my family if I didn't do that because it was so expensive. And I mean, they're at the point where she's getting older, she's training, she's competing, and it's her entire life. And they're spending like about a thousand dollars a month in just the early years, just to keep up with everything. Wow. With Diane, what? like donating money, like donating lessons, like yeah, it's yeah. Um, I think that's why ice skating has the like connotation that it already has is that these are like princesses. wealthy, well-to-do <laughs> princesses. Thank you. Yeah, it, ice skating has that ice princess connotation connotation because who can afford these lessons who can afford the costumes the costumes who i mean i know again leah and i grew up in like dance and dance is like expensive enough but it's like ice skating is three four times the amount of that and i know 
like it wasn't easy for my parents to have me in dance my whole life, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I, it's like, it's just crazy how expensive ice skating is and how these families are able to make it work. And how committed they were despite their circumstances. Like it's so like, it's interesting to me that her mom would still make the decision to let her not only let her, but kind of force her to, to go and do this thing that's costing them how much money every, every month. But yeah, I think yeah. it's because she saw down the line, the, the level of talent might be oh, yeah. beneficial. Well, I think that's exactly it. Because around this time, Dorothy Hamill is the darling of the ice skating world. And they're like, wow, she's on the Wheaties box and she has all these endorsement deals and she's making so much money off of just existing as an ice skater. Mm-hmm. So you're right. I think she was seeing it as like, this will pay off. This is an investment. But again, I mean, even with Lavana, she made all of Tanya's costumes. Sometimes Tanya wouldn't eat in a day. So she's skating on an empty stomach. Oh, my God. Um, And it just was still not enough. And the stress is just taking its toll on Tanya and the family. But they couldn't stop. I mean, Tanya also describes them on the highway, just picking up bottles and cans to recycle at plants to get like, I mean, you can only get like three cents a bottle or something. They're just doing everything and anything they can to make extra money for this. But she was just so talented, they couldn't stop. And I think one of the things that made her stand out, like we said earlier, was just her brute strength. She she could jump higher, spin longer and try things that just made other people scared. (laughs) Right. Like by the time she was 12, she could do a triple Lutz. Oh, yeah. Which is a really important jump. So you would take off from the back outside of your skate and then you would spin and then land on the back outside of your skate on the opposite foot. And she's 12 years old doing this. And people couldn't do that at 12. They're watching her and they're like, you know, she is bigger and stronger and like a more powerful than these other skaters it's like a early version of Simone Biles yeah yeah well and actually I think she's so much like Surya Bonnelly who like was another like powerful like black French female ice skater who Mm -hmm. they just would never give her the medals yes because she didn't look like the typical skater so like I feel like some people are like was Tanya really being like discriminated against because of what she looked like? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> and I, that's the thing that I think we lose in the Tanya Harding story, which of course Leah and I are totally playing party to that because we're going to talk, you know, later on all about the controversy and, you know, the whole craziness about Tanya Harding. But because of all that, we lose the piece of she was incredibly talented she was a phenomenal athlete that is like superhuman and doing these things at such a young age that i mean it's just it's phenomenal and we lose that with her because of everything that happens yeah for sure that's overlooked Mm-hmm. It, I mean, so much that she dropped out of high school and they're making documentaries about her when she's 15 before yeah. any of this crap even happened. Yeah. Right. Like, she was that good. Yeah. I right. think people right. think that she shot to fame because of the situation we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. But like people knew about her before just because she was a prodigy. Mm-hmm. But again, like because the judges, you know, judge on presentation and grace and even in one thing i read about how the ice sounds when you skate on it 
Like that's crazy. That's why they're like, that's one of the things they cited in the Surya Bonnelly story. Cause they were like, well, you know, we're looking for more of like a glide and yours kind of sounds like someone's cutting ice. And she's like, <gasps> I, mean, I have a boot with a blade on the bottom. So yeah, I'm kind of cutting ice a little bit. Like, <laughs> Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> it's also, if you want to jump higher, you have to skate faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you are going to make a different noise and people weren't ready for women to be doing these massively big jumps that where you're up in the air for longer and then you land harder oh yeah like the, the ice sounds different when men skate versus when women skate yeah ballerinas on ice <laughs> yes i think of um we we know it's what you just said is like 50 percent of ice skating is like technique and ability and the other 50 percent is presentation and i actually i just thought of like johnny weir who was this phenomenal is this phenomenal ice skater but he didn't fit the mold of what the judges were looking for and so he got dinged for that yeah and he was being like too feminine they thought right right exactly too masculine it's like you can't win i just want to skate you can't win yeah (laughs) now that she's getting older she is actually really starting to compete in some big name tournaments. So in 1986, she placed sixth in the U.S. national championships at the age of 15. And I know, I feel like we've all probably seen that scene where she calls her mom and she's like, I got sixth place. And she's like, (sighs) yeah, but you didn't win. And like, you missed your combination. You skated terribly. And she hangs up the phone and she's like, huh. Well, my mom's pretty terrible, isn't she? To like yeah. documentary maker. And the lady's like, I can't imagine being there for that. We have yeah. on film. And that's in Sharp Edges. And Sharp Edges is what um, Margot Robbie watched over and over again when she's preparing for the film I, Tanya. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, just she deadpans the camera and is just like, what a bitch. You know what, what I mean? Bitch, like, yeah. Immediately. And it's just funny to watch this teenager because you think when um in I Tanya, when Tanya Harding's breaking the third wall that or the fourth wall, there is no third wall. Well yeah, it is. But it's, <laughs> so, when she's breaking the fourth wall, like you think that's a made-up actress trick. It's not. Tanya right. Harding did that throughout a documentary when she was 15. Yeah. Well, I think we can all say, regardless of our relationship with our mom, whether it's a good one or a bad one. Fortunately, I have a good one with my mom, but regardless of your relationship with your mom, your mom is one of your most important people. And what oh, she yeah. says matters. And what your mom says versus what a friend says is totally different. What your mom says matters and you feel it and it can then hurt the most if she's being a bitch, you know? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. But also like, this is how Lavana thought that she was going to skate better. And I even heard some stories that she paid people to say mean things to Tanya before she would go out on the ice. Oh my gosh. That's so terrible. It's horrible. She's a monster. (laughs) And and every time I hear that, I always just wonder, did she ever actually try the alternative? You know, like she, she seems like she got some reward from, treating her like an ass and you know she skated better than did you ever attempt to do the opposite by encouraging her supporting her uplifting her and seeing if that also worked yeah positive reinforcement so i mean so i'm also going to put a little caveat she's in a lot of competitions right now i did not write down the exact name of all of them so we're going (laughs) to a little bit of an overview yeah there's tons of them there's so many um but 
basically after she placed six, then she went to Skate America and she kills it and she gets second place. Wow. And she's like, okay, I might actually be able to make it to the Olympics. But as usual with Tanya, her home life affects her skating so much. And it's this year that she gets second in Skate America that her mom just brings home this guy and she's like, I'm leaving your father and going with this guy. So you better find somewhere to live because I don't want you. Oh my God. Straight up. Like you can live with him. You can live in a pile of trash. Like I don't, I just don't care. Just figure it, figure it out. So she moves in with her dad. Um, and you would kind of think that this would be on a positive note, but you know, it's just, it's not working out and she loses her focus. She always loses her focus and she even drops out of high school to kind of try and regain it. But then this is around the time her stepbrother comes back and he tries to rape her. Um, and he ends up getting arrested, which is good. It's um, actually but it's like, a really horrible event. And it's a weird situation because she was actually preparing for her first, her first date with Jeff. Yeah. Who like, like while all this who, is happening. Who's like another abusive figure in her life. But yeah. she's like preparing for this date and her brother just comes in and like attacks her pretty much trying to kiss her. And she has a curling iron and like burns him to yeah. try to get away while she's curling her hair. And he comes after her. Unfortunately, she can get to the neighbor's house to call the police yeah but it's like that is not an event you need to be happening and her mom on interviews is sure this didn't happen yeah wow. she said Tanya has a flair for the dramatics yep. wow yep this is all happening she's trying to prep to potentially be in the olympics and then things really take a bad turn her dad announces that he got a job in idaho and he's like i'm moving you want to come with me and she's like i can't quit right now like i need to try to get to the olympics so she has to move in with her mom oh and her sixth husband at this wow. point and it's just terrible she's spending as much time she can at the rink but she also can't afford to be there so she's like working at the ice skating rink just to get time to skate well, and as bad as Tanya has it, she openly says all the time, her half-brother, stepbrother, whatever, is the only person she's ever hated and found unforgivable. Wow. So, like, even her mom, forgivable. Yeah. All these stepdads, Jeff, all these people, they're forgivable. Not this dude. So you know yeah. he sucks. You know. you know her life is, yeah. like, trash, if that's it. Oh, yeah. After a little bit of, like, her living with Lavana, she ends up moving in with this boyfriend jeff galuli can i just interject to say good luck to all of us saying that last name that I know. oh my <laughs> god you have you <laughs> i have not so and it will show yeah <laughs> and it basically means that she just traded one abuser for the next because jeff is not a nice guy and like yeah she tells you like he was abusing them like he was abusing me like it was not okay and of course they get married when she's 19 and Tanya admits <sighs> for all the wrong reasons. Like it was not a good decision. Well, she openly says like, he's the first boy that gave her attention. Yeah. Like you, you are making a decision based on a teenage crush and it's just mm -hmm. not smart. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it kind of sucks because I feel like her career kind of ebbed and flowed with what was going on with her mom at home. And now it's going to start to do the same thing with what's going on with Jeff at home. Yeah. Every time they're kind of getting together, she's not training as hard. She's slipping, she's smoking, she's drinking. 
And at some point she tells Diane, she goes, I need a break. I can't do this anymore. And Diana's like, okay, yeah, I think that's a good idea. So mm -hmm. she takes a break and she comes back. She gets a new coach, Dodie. Um, and then she starts training again. <laughs> she gets her shit together. She weighs like 98 pounds, but she's bench pressing, whatever you call it, 110. Oh my God. I know. She's like a beast at this point. <laughs> but Jeff never leaves her alone. He's no. at every training, mm -hmm. every practice, everything she does, he's sitting there watching her like a cash cow. That's yep. a problem. There's, there's a oh, difference yeah. between having Support. a very, very supportive partner. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Having a super supportive partner and having a stalker. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And again, she's still in these competitions, still getting low marks because of how she looks. And she's like, all right, if the Olympics is really what I want to do, then I have to bring my A game. I have to do something no one else is doing. I have to land a triple axel. Mm. An unbelievably difficult ice skating move. <laughs> Cause I didn't realize what all went into it. Like like I didn't, cause like I didn't, I don't know anything about ice skating, mm -hmm. <laughs> but like apparently like on this one, like normally they can use their toe pick to kind of shoot themselves into the air. But this one, you have to do it from a flat blade, which is basically like just no momentum. Foot. It's unbelievable. And then yeah. you've got to do the three rotations and then yeah. land on one leg. You can't land on the two. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, I feel like I'm bringing up a lot of dance references, uh, mm -hmm. which is how Leah and I met was through our, our dance studio. So I'm bringing up lots of references, but I see parallels between like getting a nice plie before you jump up into the air versus coming from a completely neutral position. I mean, it's nearly impossible. And there's yeah. actually something called an axle in dance and there's, you just do one, there's no triple. <laughs> And it's very right. difficult. <laughs> right. Yeah. So she's trying to do three on ice again. It's just, it's absolutely crazy. So she's working hard towards it. And in 1991, we're ready for this part. We're ready. Let's do, <laughs> I mean, she did a lot of, she did a lot of competitions. Yeah. You can't just, we're not going to list them all. Nobody wants <laughs> third, fifth, sixth, second, first, yeah. whatever. She yeah. won a lot of stuff. Uh -huh. So we're in 1991. She is 20 years old and which is old already. Old figure. already for yeah, for figure skating and Olympics. Right. And all of that crazy stuff. So she's 20 years old. She is in this incredible blue ice skating figure outfit. <laughs> and they everybody knows that the third move in her routine is going to be the triple axle. And people are waiting with bated breath. Most mm -hmm. people quit. Most people go up for yeah. a double and come down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And everybody's waiting and she goes for it and she nails it. Oh. And you can tell, I mean, she's skating away and she's like, yes, she's like, I don't yeah. care how for this. I'm so excited. Well, and the truth and lies of Tanya Harding, I think they put it the best. Mm -hmm. Well, they freeze frame it. So if anybody who's listening wants to watch it, you should absolutely watch that. And then you hear the announcer say, oh, good girl. And yeah. it's like the sweetest thing. And some of the people commenting on it were like, how often did Tanya hear somebody say, right. yeah. good girl, you know, yeah. good for you. And that was just crushing for me because I was like, oh my God, yeah. I say that to my dog. And it's a poor Tanya Harding. Right. No, even now, just talking about it, I get goosebumps because I've watched that segment on YouTube like a hundred times. And I mean, it just, it, it is 
in all the interviews, more recent interviews I've, I've heard from her, it is like the moment of her life. Mm-hmm. That was the moment that changed her life. And you just see it on her face. And again, like you said, the, the like judge or commentator saying good girl, she, it, they, in truth and lies, the documentary, they say like, perhaps she heard him say that. And that's part of her glee in that moment because she probably had never, ever heard those words before in her life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, she's stoked. She becomes the second woman ever to land a triple axel in a competition. And the first American. The first American woman. The first wow. a, a Japanese figure skater. And she is stoked. And this also means, so she wins the whole competition. And it also means that she qualifies for the Olympics in Canada. She's like, this is my dream. I'm so excited. Meanwhile, I also want to point out, when she's doing the triple axel, her and Jeff had like broken up for a bit. Mm. They're not together. Hmm. A couple months before the competition, the Olympics, her and Jeff get back together and everything goes downhill. It just completely throws her. She starts smoking, drinking, partying, the whole thing. And while everyone else gets to Canada weeks early to prep for the Olympics, she gets there three days ahead. He is not doing okay. Hmm. He doesn't perform as well. And you can kind of see it. She's not skating as hard. She's She's not jumping as high. She's shaking. And like, it's just, it's such a sad performance. She, yeah, she's visibly shaken. She's just not in good physical health because of Jeff Galuli. And he's up here. She's up at the top of this roller coaster where she is like, the master of the world. She landed a triple axel and everybody expects the best of her, but she's used to people expecting the worst of her. Yeah. Right. This is not going to lead to good performance. Nope. So she misses the triple axel. I think she gets like fourth place. She doesn't medal and she's devastated. Mm-hmm. And she gets the news that the Olympics is changing. They have decided to, instead of doing summer and winter in the same year every four years, they're going to switch off and do winter every two, you know, winter and summer every two years. Yes. And she realizes she's like, oh my God, I have another chance and soon. So I've really got to get my act together. And it's also really worth noting that mm-hmm. uh, in the Olympics, if you don't win the gold in figure skating, people don't ever really know your name. Yeah. Um, so she was really far back. And the bronze medal in not. Yeah. The bronze medal in 1992 was Nancy Kerrigan. Yeah. So she finished one place ahead of her and bumped her out of the medal stand. Got it. I didn't actually know that. Yeah, it is a very bitter situation, and I think it obviously affects choices that happen later. (laughs) Wink, wink. Hint, hint, yeah. um, I mean, if you're okay with it, we're going to leave her just dangling dangling there. The end of the 1992 Canada Olympics. Because she had given up ice skating. She was done. Yeah, because you can't yeah. go another four years. You can't be 25 right? yeah. skating in the Olympics. You're done. But you maybe could be 22. So 
My cocktail um, I found on a website called called Willamette Weekly, according to an article on this website, which I think is just like a local Washington newspaper somewhere near where Tanya lives. According to the Willamette Weekly, in Battleground, Washington, there is a Polynesian-themed bar where you can order a drink created just for Tanya. It's made with Bacardi 151 or substitute with any other rum. Uh, Vodka, watermelon liqueur, pineapple juice and orange juice and it's called the triple axle named after tanya oh my god i love it yeah cheers. yeah cheers to everyone it's great yeah it's did you get the water good yeah the taste i can really taste it it's nice you're welcome <laughs> i'm always very skeptical of the watermelon flavor but it tastes amazing in this it's this so funny. Great. All the drinks we make that like require, you know, like a liqueur, like a blackberry liqueur, blueberry liqueur. It's always like, cool. Now I have a huge bottle of liqueur. <laughs> when else am I going to use like raspberry yeah, liqueur? <laughs> yeah. A spreadsheet where we can use each other's crap. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we we totally. I'm like, so, Rachel, what do you have? <laughs> yeah. Do you have the vodka. OK, I'm going <laughs> to. Yeah, I'm bringing the vodka. You're bringing the watermelon. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So let's get into a little background on Nancy Kerrigan, who is going to be a big part of the story we're going to unfold for you. Um, a little background on her. She was, in most regards, the complete opposite of Harding, at least when it came to her personality and also her skating style. Uh, Kerrigan was born only a year before Harding, and despite also growing up in a family of somewhat modest means. Uh, For instance, Kerrigan's father sometimes worked three jobs, much like Tanya, to support her skating career. She had a huge support system in her parents, her older brothers, an extended family, which was a huge contrast, as we just learned, to Harding's rough upbringing in various trailer parks with some, might say, cruel parents or mother. Um, Also, in contrast to Harding, Kerrigan's public image was one of a well-brought-up, middle-class, clean, kind young woman. Harding and Kerrigan were often pinned against each other in the media, casting them as polar opposites, not only in temper, but also in their lifestyles and in their their style, which we talked about Tanya being kind of more like... uh, glam or trailer park glam I guess you could say (laughs) (laughs) and Kerrigan was much more clean cut buttoned up you know she she didn't go to those types of trends Mm -hmm. Um, but also in their skating style Tanya as you mentioned was super super like hard uh, very physical and Kerrigan kind of fit that mold of of an ice princess of you know a, a dainty girly ice skater yeah which I feel like it's like Tanya's like has her bedazzler and she's like this looks nice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Nancy Kerrigan, who I heard somewhere that like Vera Wang was designing her ice. Yes, skates. yes, yeah. Like, so if you yeah, look at polar opposite, she looked mm-hmm. ethereal. Yeah, like, no, just, absolutely. Just the way that she used her body, which I mean, you know, they were pushing Tanya into dance lessons to try to get her some sort of grace, and like mm-hmm. Nancy Kerrigan just had it in spades. Yeah. 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 And then, like you said, in her skating style, we know Tanya was this like 
I mean, athletic, very athletic. And, and she could do these amazing twists and turns on the ice. And Nancy Kerrigan's like signature move. I don't know what I'm talking about because I don't know ice skating, but it was the really beautiful, like long movement where, yes, she has the arm up and she's holding her like back leg up behind her. That was like her signature move. And it was just super dainty and beautiful. And so, yeah, down to their skating style was completely different. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so now let's get to the juicy stuff. It's January 6th, 1994, and Kerrigan was at the Kobo Arena in Detroit practicing for the U.S. Championships. And I was was being a badass. (laughs) (laughs) There was media there that day filming her as she was rehearsing, and there is footage of her as she was exiting the rink. She was kind of walking through these like curtains that head out to the hallway. And so once she passed through those curtains, the cameras couldn't see her anymore. She also had her coaches with her that day, but they had stopped several yards behind her to chit chat with someone that they hadn't seen in a while. And that's when we get this iconic, tragic, legendary scene. I've actually uploaded a link here to the scene so that the four of us can view it together. And then we will include the audio of it in this episode so that our listeners can hear this along with us. It's awful. Oh, jeez, listen. I've seen it like a million times, but it's still... Why? (laughs) And now it's a hard, hard black stick. That's terrible. Yeah. The why is... Yeah, why? Which, I mean, it's true. It's a... I understand it's... And we'll get into all of it, but I understand it's it's their their livelihood and it, it's everything to Tanya and to Nancy, but at the same time, it's like, it's a sport. Like, and, and it sucks that somebody did this over, you know, a sport, you know, just a, a competition. It's so stupid. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think just if we look at it, put all of the stuff that we know is about to happen aside, how terrifying and how horrific is that to be a young woman at a rehearsal just walking to fucking get to your car or whatever and someone comes up to you and hits you? Yeah. I mean, that's terrifying. Yeah. And I think sometimes people are like, Oh, she like, I think the mindset is that she knew immediately the, the situation, but like, honestly, being a young woman who's being attacked in a dark hallway, that probably wasn't where her first, first thought was of like, Oh, she's trying to bump me out of the Olympics. It was probably like, I am about to be physically assaulted. Like your thought just immediately goes there. And you know, and she, the part that gets me is she's there and she's saying why. And then she goes, help me. Cause yeah. like, I'm sure it just feels like, like as a person who's been physically attacked, like by a stranger, like it sucks and you don't oh. know what's going on. And like, yeah. it feels, it's the most confusing thing in the world because you have no, you've never been in that situation before. So, and, and then to have all these cameras in your face and there right. were people with her and they didn't see it. So yeah. they Placing her skates like she fell or like something's wrong with her ankle. Like, and they're saying, what happened? What happened? And nobody said this guy hit her in the knee. Like she's not going to be able to skate tomorrow. Like her knee is busted. That was like, I was, the kid was under the impression. I think it was her shins when I was a little kid. Yeah. We're going to get into that a little bit. Exactly where, (laughs) 
Yeah, but uh, it's also important to note the outfit that she was wearing in that incident. If anyone wants to jump in and kind of say what outfit she was wearing, because it's going to come up later. It was white and and lacy like an angel. Yeah, (laughs) white and lacy like an angel. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's going to come up later. So just remember that. Okay, so we've kind of already alluded to it. But what the heck happened? After Kerrigan passed through those curtains, a large man with a baton struck her on the right leg before taking off. We would later learn that this man actually intended to break her right knee, the leg that she landed all of her jumps on, but missed and left her instead with a horrible bruise on her thigh. As the man was attempting to get away, he found that the glass door that he was going to use to exit was locked. So instead of striking it with, oh, I don't know, the baton that he already had in his hand, question mark, question mark, he used his head. To break the glass door. (laughs) I didn't know this. (laughs) Yeah. And then after he gets through the glass door, there's a car outside with a getaway driver waiting for him. So I mentioned those few things like the fact that he missed his target of her knee and the fact that he used his head to break a glass door on purpose. Because as we will learn, her attacker and this whole plan in general was totally and completely incompetent. (laughs) But regardless of that, we now have an American athlete that has been horrifically and intentionally harmed. Her father carried her off to her dressing room and the footage of her crying, why, why, would be broadcast around the world. It didn't take long for people to suspect that Tanya Harding had had something to do with Kerrigan's assault. At the end of the day, who had anything to gain from Kerrigan being injured but Harding? Kerrigan was, and had been for a long time, Harding's number one competitor. If Kerrigan could not compete in the U.S. championships, it could also mean that she would not be representing the United States in the Olympics, and that that slot would likely go to Harding instead. Mm. And whoever did commit this assault got their way, because although Kerrigan fortunately did not suffer from any broken bones, the bruising and swelling in her leg and knee did mean that she had to withdraw from the championships that were set for the following night. Harding would go on to win first place at the championships. Mm. Before I continue, I would like to say, Leah, you and I need to stop doing these guest uh, episodes this way where our guests go first, because by the second half, I'm drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Now that we're in the second half, I'm like, oh my God, we need to change this format. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. We were also drunk. We did our whole full episode before we started. Oh, my God. You guys recorded tonight. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. We're we're plastered. We're really holding it here. But I'm like, it's like fall in Baltimore. I'm sweating. Yeah. I'm insanely impressed, though, because you ladies pulled it off very well. I would never have guessed. That was very well done. Wow. Yeah, definitely professional drinkers. Okay. Within days of the attack, Harding was being questioned by the FBI and was being interviewed by the media. And it didn't take authorities long to unravel what was going on. If we rewind by a couple of weeks, we know that Harding's technically ex-husband, although they were living together at this time and were referring to each other at this time as husband and wife, reached out to a buddy of his named Sean Eckhart and essentially told Eckhart that they needed to figure out a way to eliminate Kerrigan from the competition. 
In turn, Eckhart reached out to a hitman, Shane Stant, and his uncle, Derek Smith, and they devised a plan to injure Kerrigan's landing leg to remove her as a competitor for the price of 6500 bucks. And there's a major, major paper trail of all of this. Stant checked into a Super 8 motel with his own name near the Kobo Hall skating rink just two days before he attacked her. I just, like, I... The the first thing that sucks is the the lack of girl support and girls thing yeah. that they're mm. not doing. And the second thing that sucks is that society almost immediately assumed Tanya because they like people automatically assume girls are catty. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, you trained us this way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I do and don't agree with you in that, like, I'm also horrified that instantly the spotlight was cast on her. At the same time, who else had, had anything to benefit from Kerrigan being injured? Yeah. You know, I mean, in, in one sense, it is valid. Yeah. yeah. In addition to that paper trail where Stant checked himself with his own name into a Super 8 motel near... <laughs> where Kerrigan was injured. The uh, Sean Eckert guy, he began standing in as a bodyguard for Harding at this exact same time and was going around and bragging that he had been involved in the assault. Like I said earlier, the whole thing was totally and completely incompetent. The level of, of stupidity is just shocking. <laughs> Truly and didn't shocking. Like, his car like every 15 minutes or something? Yes. Every an hour? <laughs> I mean, truly, true incompetence here. (laughs) Just one day after the attack, the deputy police chief of Detroit received an anonymous call confirming that Galuli and Eckhart had been involved. See, you got Galuli. It's fine. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) I was nervous leading up to it. (laughs) So now we're going to go into more of the guilty pleas and admissions of Galuli and Eckhart. Um, And I'll... And their sentencing. So an FBI investigation was quickly launched after all this took place, looking into Harding's bodyguard, since he was going around bragging that he, he assaulted Kerrigan, um, and then also her husband, Gululi. And only five days after the attack, so not even a full week, on January 11th, Eckhart confessed to his involvement in the attack to the FBI and incriminated... Can we get to Brianna Taylor, please? It only oh took Oh, my days. God. I know. Sorry, go ahead. No. To be, you have to be a white person. You have to be popular. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you for calling that out. That was excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So he confessed to his involvement in the attack and then incriminated Stant Gululi and then Smith, who was the driver of the getaway car. On January 15th, Gululi surrendered himself to the FBI. And on January 27th, he implicated during his confession that Tanya was not only aware of the attack, but helped plan it. (sighs) Tanya was allowed to participate in the Winter Olympics because at the time she was adamantly denying her involvement and little to no evidence at the time could be found against her. Uh, We'll get into the Olympics shortly, but just know that evidence against her was piling up. Seriously. Likely a mention, Gluli said that Harding had known about the attack all along. In her initial interview with the FBI, which lasted approximately 10 hours, she initially was adamant that Galuli had had nothing to do with the attack, but then a few hours into the interview, she changed her story and said she knew he was involved. In a formal press conference that she made on January 27th, 1994, 
Harding read off of a prepared speech and admitted the following. I had no prior knowledge of the planned assault on Nancy Kerrigan. I am responsible, however, for failing to report things I learned about the assault when I returned home from nationals. She essentially admitted that she was aware that there was some kind of plot going on, but didn't know anything beyond that. She also continued to contend that her failure to report that information to authorities was not a crime, that she did not in any way violate the standards expected of an Olympic athlete, and therefore should be allowed to compete. Because, of course, at this time, the U.S. Olympic Committee was deliberating whether to keep Harding on the American women's ice skating team. In response to these deliberations, Harding sued the U.S. Olympic Committee $20 million. Oh, my God. $20 million. 20, 20 mil. 20 mil. <laughs> and in response to that lawsuit, the committee chose to keep Harding on the team since she hadn't technically been charged with a crime. Yeah. Kerrigan, who had been working her ass off in physical therapy to recover, had also been selected alongside Harding to represent the USA in the Olympics. So this next part, like, gets me like, ooh, the drama, the drama. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited. The girl drama? Yes. (laughs) So now we've made it to the 1994 Winter Olympics in Norway. Prior to the performances, the skaters were all given time on the ice for a practice session. The date was February 17th, 1994, and this was the first time that Harding and Kerrigan had seen each other since the assault. It became a full-on media event. Some 400 people from the press showed up to the practice session just to film the encounter. The two women ended up completely ignoring each other on the ice, although there were a few pictures snapped that day that... Well, I'll have all of you describe these pictures. Yes. All right, let's describe this one. She wore the same thing. Is she intimidating? Yes. (sighs) So Kerrigan's wearing that same angelic white lace skating outfit Mm -hmm. that she was attacked in. Yes. Tanya Harding is kind of skating past her in like a very dark colored outfit, kind of side-eyeing her. Yes. I feel like her face is saying, please don't look at me. Oh God, <laughs> do not look at me. Yeah. Very like nervous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think she looks very nervous and very uncomfortable. Like literally. So we're on, I just moved on to picture number two and literally it's, it's they're They're like more actively skating now. And again, the face is just like, please God, don't let anything happen to, on Tanya's face. It's just like, please don't look at me. <laughs> yeah. And props to Nancy for being like, I'm not worried about you. Tanya looks very worried about Nancy. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Kerrigan, like, I just clicked on the third picture and Kerrigan is, like, smiling, kind of, you know, she she looks fine. And Tanya looks like she's going to cry. Yeah. Like, the yeah, difference last in their one. outfits, the difference in their builds. Like, when you put oh, them yeah. close together, it just becomes so striking. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I com- I completely agree. They, they look very different. And then, yeah, same thing that Harding is very much side-eyeing Kerrigan in a very awkward and uncomfortable manner. And then you ladies did also notice what Kerrigan was wearing. She was wearing the same skating costume 
the day of the practice session that she had been wearing the day of her attack. And Kerrigan later admitted that this was intentional. Her favorite outfit. (laughs) (laughs) I think she did say like it was empowering for her and, and the piece of it that was empowering for her was the humor in it. That's what she said. She said humor is empowering. That's why I wore this outfit. Mm. I mean, take your story back. Women have to do that all the time after assault. Rewrite your Mm -hmm. own story. And sometimes that means putting on the thing that you were most scared of. Right. Totally. Mm -hmm. When Harding and Kerrigan competed on February 25th, 48.5 million people tuned in. This is, to this day, the top rated program in Olympic history. I think I read somewhere, too, that and we might get in you might get into this Rachel but that like after mm-hmm. this whole thing happened ice skating became like the number 2 viewed sport after oh yeah uh, football in the United States oh my god oh yeah because it was so i mean the girl drama here is like electrifying and i know for myself now like if i'm watching the winter olympics it's ice skating and that's it. That's gonna be it. You're not. You're not into the. Uh, what is it? Curling. Her yeah. curling. Curling. No, I'm gonna. Luge. <laughs> the luge is terrifying. But yeah, I mean, if I'm gonna watch the Winter Olympics, it's truthfully, it's the like speed skating and the figure skating, and that's gonna yeah. be it for me. I mean, uh, it was for a while when Tiger Woods was dating Lindsey Vaughn. That was- right. Oh, that's yeah, the true. Snowboard. Yeah, <laughs> that's actually true. For the for the few moments when they were dating, I watched Lindsey Vaughn. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. Oh, so sports is literally called skeleton, and I feel like that's not a good start. Like <laughs> no, that oh is God. all bad. I don't <laughs> even know what that is. Thing. What is that? It's I, like I, I, the opposite of luge. It's luge, but you're the opposite it's way. <laughs> solo luge, but no, it's, it's like. Yeah, the oh, you're like thing. you're just on like a open you're sled or something. Yeah, instead of down. open sled. Right. Mm-hmm. You're penguining you all the way down. <laughs> you could never in a million years convince me ever, 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 <laughs> ever. <laughs> so, all these millions of people they're tuning in to watch Harding and Kerrigan perform. Harding had an awful performance from start to finish. When her name was called, she did not immediately report to the ice. Instead, there's a camera that was filming the little hallway area where the skaters walked out from, and it showed Harding sitting on a bench, surrounded by her team, super flustered as she messed with her shoes. She was warned that if she didn't get out on the ice ASAP, she would be disqualified. So she got out there quickly and began to reform. But shortly after she began, she stopped started to cry and skated over to the judge's table where she whipped her leg onto the table to show that the lace on her skates was broken and that she couldn't perform like that. It's such an iconic picture that of course I had to include this in the episode. Feel free to describe what is happening in this picture. So she is staring at her skate mouth agape. (laughs) (laughs) Truly her mouth is like if you were to draw a cartoon character, the full upside down U shape. Yeah. I mean, she looks like a jack-o'-lantern. Like, yeah. uh, And I love that she like just whipped her skate up, you know, up onto the platform or whatever to show the judge. She's like trying to show the judges her ice skate to prove to them that it's broken. And that's why she had to stop. And and I just love that. That's such like an ice skater dancer thing to just be like here, like just (laughs) like whip your leg up. (laughs) That's a great point. Yeah. And it's so like when um, 
if the if the listeners have seen Itania, they do side by sides of yes. Margot next to her, and she puts does this scene perfectly. flawlessly. Yeah, she's fantastic. I love her. Yes. The judges allowed Harding to restart, but it didn't help. She would end up in eighth place. Kerrigan went out and kicked ass, but also did not win gold, although many people believe she should have. The gold medal would go on to 16-year-old Oksana ba- Baul from Bayou. Ukraine. Ba- Bayou. Say that again. Ba- Bayou? Bayou. Bayou from Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I say her name again later. I'm going to need your help again, Leah. <laughs> okay. I got you. I got you. Thanks. I'll just pause and look at you. <laughs> What's kind of funny about this whole thing is that at this point, Kerrigan had intentionally or not created this image of this angelic, wholesome figure. And so the public was really disturbed by the way she reacted on live TV to Oksana Bayul's win. When Bayul was taking a while to get out to the floor for the medal ceremony because she wanted to touch up her makeup, Kerrigan was caught on live TV complaining, oh, come on. So she's going to get out here and cry again? What's the difference? Oh, yes. <laughs> I didn't this, know that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And this is not really related to the Olympics, but in a continuation of the public being disappointed to learn that Kerrigan is... I don't know, human? Right. A, a few weeks after the Olympics, Kerrigan was participating in a parade at Disney World and was caught by a microphone saying, this is so corny. This is so dumb. I hate it. This is the most corny thing I've ever done. And that's Yo, coming from an ice skater. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the best part about this, you can watch it on YouTube now. The best part is she's saying all these things about like, oh, my God, this is the worst. This is so stupid. She's saying it to someone in a Mickey Mouse costume like <laughs> on, a, on a parade float. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, and she looks one trillion percent miserable. So and I'm not excusing her, but it because I mean, come on, have a little have a little decorum but yeah she's a human being and it's just she was like elevated to this pedestal that's not realistic and so anytime she expressed any kind of human emotion people were like the public was very disturbed by it and alarmed yeah okay so what were the legal consequences after the fallout right due to the evidence that as i said was mounting against tanya on march 16th harding entered into a plea agreement pleading guilty to conspiracy to hinder prosecution and as part of this bargain agreement she could not be charged with anything more than that wow yeah five days after her plea agreement on march 21st 1994 a portland grand jury issued an indictment stating there was evidence that harding participated in the attack plot the indictment included witness testimonies from harding's instructors her college classmates which I actually didn't know that she went to college. Had no clue. Me either. (laughs) (laughs) Choreographers and journalists. Um, It stated there was evidence Harding fraudulently used USFSA, provided skating monies to finance the assault. Mm. It also read that Harding, Galuli, Eckhart, Smith, and Stant agreed to quote, knowingly cause physical injury by means of a dangerous weapon. The grand jury foreman said the evidence implied Harding had involvement from the beginning, but she was not charged in the indictment due to the terms of her March 16th plea agreement. 
Harding received three years probation and was slapped with a $160,000 fine. Whoa. (laughs) Community service, a mandatory psych evaluation, which I found very interesting. Yeah. And some other super fun stuff, which I won't go into. (laughs) And only a few months later, her 1994 national championship title was revoked and she was banned from the USFSA forever. I think that is the most devastating part. Oh, yeah. And and to piggyback off of that, when I was saying earlier that, you know, Kerrigan wasn't able to perform in the championships uh, because of her injury, when I Googled, like, I was pretty sure that Tanya Harding had one, but it was very difficult to find that answer because her name had been stripped from that championship. So I had to, like, do a lot of searching because right now it says, like, no one won that year. Mm. That's crazy. Yeah. So with the exception of Harding, uh, everyone else involved in Kerrigan's attack did serve jail time. So Mm. Galuli's attorney negotiated a plea agreement in exchange for his early testimony regarding all involved parties in the attack. And in July, he was sentenced to two years in prison after publicly apologizing to Kerrigan, which Mm. I have to imagine was really awkward. Oh, yeah. Um, Galuli and Eckhart pled guilty to racketeering, which does anybody know what that is money transfer uh illegal money transfer for harm right yeah because i think it's like i think racketeering is the act of like threatening people in like illegal in in a business stealing something yeah well so they they pled guilty to that while stant and smith pled guilty to conspiracy to commit second degree assault Mm. Yeah, fun stuff. So where is Tanya now? Tanya's career, and I'm using air quotes when I say career, uh, because (laughs) her career in ice skating was over at this point. And uh, so her career and personal life moving forward went into a bit of a downward spiral, which, given her history, is kind of unsurprising, unfortunately. Yeah. So I'm going to go through a few of a few of the things that she did, um, but just know these are just touching on everything that she has done since her ice skating career. Well, so because some, I would have loved her to be an Olympic announcer. Oh, for sure. Right, There's so right. much she could have done, but I I think since she was banned, I don't think she could do anything. No, but she could have competed and lost and still been the most interesting skating announcer out there. For oh, sure. Yeah. And the ratings for ice skating would have continued to go up if she were the announcer. Yeah. So since leaving skating, Harding has worked as a welder, a painter, a boxer, a musician, a hardware sales clerk at Sears, a game show (gasps) contestant, and the list goes on and on. So like I said, I'm just going to go over a couple of these career changes uh, to highlight or I guess low light. Um, (laughs) the things that she has gone through since this. So in 1994, an explicit videotape of Harding and Galuli was released. The New York Post reported that Galuli had supplied the videotape fragment for an undisclosed sum of money. Really top-notch husband. Really great. Nobody wants that. The worst. No one is seeing the Tanya Harding, Jeff Galuli sex tape. (laughs) (laughs) But needing, needing the money eventually not only Galuli but also Harding they used the same agent to negotiate equal payment on a 
penthouse distribution of their sex tape. So it oh. actually they made money. They ended up making money off of it. So there there is a market out there. Yeah, apparently there was a market in the <laughs> early 90s for a sex tape. <laughs> Harding also began appearing on a triple A professional wrestling show as the manager for wrestling stable Los Gringos Locos. And I know she also got into wrestling herself mm-hmm. um, later on. A promotional musical event was unsuccessful when Harding and her band, called the Golden Blades, were booed off the stage at their only performance in 1995 in Portland, Oregon. So oh my she, god! She tried, I didn't know that. Yeah, she tried getting into the music industry, and oh, she's trying all the things. She, anything, any. I think she was just really just wanted to be famous. Oh. Is the impression I got? Dating name like. <laughs> yeah so sad like that's that's not okay when i read all of this stuff i was like this just makes me feel bad like i know yeah i know she's it probably is guilty of this but it just like hurt a little bit Mm -hmm. reading through all this so i'm not done um In 1994, Harding was cast in a low-budget action film called Breakaway. Never heard of it. Nope. Don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, Harding has also appeared on television on the game show The Weakest Link, I guess. Had a 15 Minutes of Fame edition in 2002. And in 2008, she actually became a commentator for True TV's World's Dumbest. Again, wow. had no clue. In August 2019, Harding was seen in a television commercial in the United States promoting direct auto insurance. Oh, that's when the mighty have fallen. When you're in an insurance commercial. It's true. That's the true sign. Like when Shaq was in that, uh, the general auto insurance. Oh, Oh you've fallen so far. (laughs) Yeah. So basically, I think she was just trying to make ends meet, uh, to be honest, or maybe to be famous. I don't really know. (laughs) She currently lives in Washington, stating that her hometown of Portland, um, the residents there were beyond cruel to her after this whole incident and basically forced her to move. They were just so, so mean to her. Oh. Now, of course, to close out this episode, we have to talk about, is Tanya Harding guilty? How involved was she in Kerrigan's assault? For one, we know for several years that Harding maintained that she had overheard Galuli planning something prior to the Olympics, but didn't know what. In 2018, she finally admitted that she specifically overheard Galuli saying he was going to take someone out of the competition in order to ensure that Harding would make it on the team. There's also one other major piece of evidence that for me personally, shows that Harding had more involvement than she admitted. Just weeks after Kerrigan's attack, a woman named Kathy Peterson, co-owner of the Dockside Saloon in Portland, Oregon, was going around back of her restaurant to the dumpsters when she found bags of someone else's trash in her dumpster. She started going through the bags and found a check stub from the U.S. Figure Skating Association made out to Tanya Harding. This obviously piqued her interest because her discovery of this bag of trash is at the exact same time that all of the Harding slash Kerrigan drama is going on. As she continues going through the trash, she finds an envelope with Galuli's name on it 
And on the flip side, there were a bunch of doodles and handwriting on it. I've uploaded a picture here for you ladies to check out and tell me what you see on that envelope. Tanya. I don't know. What am I supposed to be looking at here? What is Gage's way? Dennis it has a phone number 12 to 4. Maybe that's her practice times. Oh. Uh, uh, yeah. five. It keeps saying Cape Cod. Uh-huh. Hmm. Yeah. So oh, yeah. The, Cape Cod is all over the place. Mm-hmm. The primary things to note on here is, of course, Cape Cod. Um, the other things to note is where you see Tony Kent Arena. Uh-huh. And you see the address Eight Gages Way written on this envelope in Harding's handwriting. Hmm. Why does this matter? Because this is the address of the skating rink in Massachusetts where Kerrigan trained. The hitmen Stant and Smith would admit that they did initially attempt to attack Kerrigan here at this rink when, unsuccessful though, they traveled to Detroit and attacked her when she was practicing there days later. Handwriting experts have concluded that that handwriting was indeed Tanya's, although she denies this to this day. Additionally, Harding did admit to investigators that she had called the Tony Kent arena to learn what Kerrigan's practice schedule was. Mm. So any, this is open discussion. Any thoughts? It's hard because I just, I wonder how real abuse is to Tanya when she mm-hmm. hears abusive talk in the background. Um, I think she heard it so much that, you know, if she had nothing to do with it and if she did just hear it, it wouldn't have rang true to her because she was abused yeah. in her life. Mm-hmm. I, again, it's like similar to earlier. I agree and disagree in that totally agree that she was probably very familiar with checking out certain elements of conversation. But in that particular conversation where she said she she specifically heard Galuli saying we need to take someone out from this competition, uh, Harding in 2018 admits that she turned around to him and said like what are you talking about i can skate like i'm a good skater i can do this without your help and so i mean that there to me is like an admission of guilt that she knew something was going on she was an active participant in that conversation it wasn't she she says she overheard but if you're responding to the conversation you're a participant in the conversation i definitely think that she i've never seen the envelope before Mm. that really blows my mind because Mm -hmm. now (laughs) because i used to think like maybe she like had an inkling but she was like oh they probably won't do it and then they did now i feel like she's even more active in it and Mm i i think that she yeah i think that she was more active than she lets on but i also don't think that she expected i don't know if she expected it to be as big of a deal again right we're saying like she was like oh like violence happens like Yes. Saddest interview where she was like, well, my mom beats me and she loves me and Jeff beats me and he loves me. And it was like, oh, my God. Like, so I think to her, it was like, yeah, people get hurt and they get over it. I don't really expecting it for like the FBI to get involved. That's an excellent point. Yeah. As someone who's been abused all her life and probably threatened of violence all her life. I think this is what you were saying is. 
I could see how hearing someone say, and and I'm not saying she wasn't involved by any means. I think she might have, like you said, had an inkling that something was happening, maybe even more than that. But hearing someone say, oh, I'm going to, we need to take someone out. We need to take someone out. And having been threatened your whole life, I feel like I could see you being like, yeah, okay, whatever, Jeff, yeah. whatever you say. I mean, on the flip side, she was, I mean, she's most likely guilty as much as I like to like paint that picture for her where I've always kind of been like, but maybe not like yeah. when we think about it. I know like if I'm watching sports and like I want a player on the opposing team to get hurt, I'm like, oh, they suck. I hope they break their ankle. <laughs> right. I'm not the wife of somebody playing on that football team. Oh, that yeah. is different. That's a whole right. different because then there's a plan then there's an address then there's a schedule so Mm -hmm. you know i i have always wanted her to have partial innocence like she Mm -hmm. wants this to be like that but at the same time she's so implicated in so many ways yeah and i think she's such a complicated character because we do want her to have even partial innocence regardless of the mounting evidence because she had such a horrific childhood and she it's unfair the way that she was treated by her family the way she was treated by the media i mean what's amazing like you shared leah like she and kerrigan essentially had i mean very similar upbringings and yet they were pinned against one another in the media and portrayed as complete polar opposites and that was so so unfair to harding and so that's why we want to give her this grace and and hope that she had nothing to do with this horrific chapter in history but i think with all of the evidence it's near impossible to deny that she had at least a surface level of involvement for sure yeah All right. Well, thank you everyone so much for listening to our season five finale episode of Hashtag History. And thank you again so much to Allie and Katie for joining us on this super special episode to talk about Tanya Harding. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. It's so fun. I mean, Allie and I are obsessed with the Olympics. Allie, even more so than I. So we... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is a real treat. This Thank is, you. This is my, like uh, childhood era. Yeah. Uh, Tanya Harding, Carrie Shrugs is when I was like between eight and 10. Like, yeah. uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> That's yes. fantastic. As our hashtag history listeners know, we will share the pictures that we discussed in this episode on our Instagram. And then all sources used to put together this episode can be found on our website. If you enjoyed the episode, do us a favor and subscribe to hashtag history on whatever podcast platform you use. Share it with a friend and give us a rate and review. And Allie and Katie, go ahead and remind all our listeners where they can find your podcast. Right. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Her Story R, on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn and YouTube at Her Story on the Rocks and uh, iTunes. Yeah. Google Play. Spotify. Spotify. Everything. Stitcher. Just type in Her Story on the Rocks. <laughs> awesome. And then be sure to also check us out on Instagram at hashtag history underscore podcast for photos, contests, updates, cool pictures of us. So much more. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, and keep watching our Instagram for information about season six, which will be coming at you in December. How is it almost December already, folks? I don't know, but here we are. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye.